0: Okay, welcome, everybody. Um, Welcome to the product tanker panel. Very pleased to be hosting. My name is Turner Holm. I'm uh, head of research in Clarkson Securities and new to covering uh, the shipping space, although I've been around it for a long time in Clarkson's, um, the heart of global shipping as we are. Uh, So very pleased uh, to have all these esteemed panelists with us today. Starting at the far end of the table, we have Jakob Melgaard from from TORM, CEO, Robert Bugby, who is president of uh, Scorpio Tankers, needs no introduction. Uh, Michael Skog uh, from Hafnia. We have uh, Carlos Adimotla from uh, D'Amico. And we have Anthony Gurney from Ardmore Shipping. So uh, we have the titans of the product market with us today. So very pleased to be able to host this. Uh, Product is um, probably the hottest segment in shipping at the moment. I think that's fair to say when you look at the rates. Uh, product tanker rates are sky high. Um, the stocks have been uh, the best investment of all segments, sub segments within shipping this year. We've seen uh, stocks double, triple, and even a bit more. So it's been a good place to be. I think uh, the key question for the panel today is, is uh, can this be sustained through next year, possibly even longer? And if so, um, what are you gonna do with the money? So I think those are the kind of things we're gonna talk about. Uh, I will say, product—it's—it's um, it's a bit of a mystery for many people. I think it's um, crude is 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 somewhat more simple, um, and I think a lot of people look at product and think it's complex. And I'll say, you know, looking at the magnificent run um, that uh, we've seen in the rates and the stocks, for that matter. Um, you know, in preparation for this panel, I was just uh, you know calling around to a lot of colleagues and. Asking everybody, uh, kind of, what is what is really driving this? Yeah, and you get a lot of different answers. I think a lot of people are still figuring it out. Um, and so I think it's really good to have um, these distinguished guests with us today to talk about that. So I think I'll open it up with that um, to to just talk about what is driving this extraordinary surge. And I'll start at the end of the table with Yoko uh, Melgar from from Torm. How did we get here?
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for. Uh giving me the first uh, stab at it here. I think we are asking, obviously, everything, everybody on the panel here, pinching our arm and saying, OK, what has uh, led us to where we are, and, uh, and how long will it last? Um, the analysis that we made so far is that the drive in the market is not because of increase in volumes. If you look at this year so far, probably the traded uh, CPP volumes is up by about 1% year on year. Uh, on, on this uh, year-to-date. If you look at the tonne mile, is also not significantly up. But if you look at what we would term the tonne days, so how long time does it actually take to take a tonne of cargo from A to B, including of the loading and the discharging, then that is of about, about 5%. Uh, so that's for the steaming time when you are actually loaded. And then the ballast lake is up for, for about 7%. So all told, it means that on the demand side, you've seen an increase high single digit overall uh, because of this. And then on the supply side, the natural tendency is obviously that that the uh, fleet would remain the same. However, this year, cannibalization from crude carriers so far is down by 2 to 3%. So when you add it all up, is actually a step change. Close to 10% uh, for the product tanker market. And that's why we are here today. And I would argue that even though that Putin does take a lot of credit for a lot of things in today's world, it is not because of Putin that the market is so strong.
0: Yeah, I've seen some of the same data in the Clarkson's number. I think that that's um, one of the mysteries as well is that the volumes are up. I think you said reference some numbers that were up one percent. I think I saw year over year from some of the Clarkson's real time shipping data using sort of satellite tracking and everything. It was up about four or five percent. So, and especially lately, we've seen a little bit of move up. But um, it is it is a bit of mystery. So I want to dig in a little bit further with that. Um, But before, maybe I'll just move down the table, Robert. Why don't you tell us about where rates are? Tell us about the journey from earlier this year to where we are today.
2: Um. Okay, we turned the year with um, MRs, modern MRs around about 13, 14,000 a day. LR2s, 13, 14,000 a day. Then we steadily increased through to February, just before the invasion in February, through to about 18 to 20 on MRs and 20 to 21 on LR2s. Today we sit at anywhere between 40 and 60 on MRs and we're fixing between with an average let's say of 45, 47 and on LR2s 50 to 90 with an average somewhere 70. Yeah. And that hasn't been a steady move. You've had you know move upwards, consolidating downwards, move upwards, consolidating down. But on a technical basis, it's been very strong. Every dip has been to a dip, creating a, a higher low, yeah. and every high has been to a higher high, and a greater breadth in the market. Earlier in the year, it was sort of one or two areas, and now it's across the across the distance. Yeah.
0: Um, Mikhail, uh, so I think Jakob from TORM said that uh, this isn't just about the war. And we had this discussion just a minute ago as well. Um, you know, to what degree has the, the sort of Russia-Ukraine situation affected the market? And, um, you know, to what degree is it, do you, do you do sort of um, yeah, judge that this is a function of other events, longer term, structural changes and refining capacity and trade patterns and those kind of things? What do you what do you kind of put this, this big move down to? How would you explain it? Was that me? Yeah, that's you.
3: Oh, okay, thanks. No, I mean, I think, <clears throat> as Jacob explained, coming into this year, there was already pretty good fundamentals, you know, indicating that we were going to see a stronger market than last year. Uh, obviously, when you cut off short-term transportation of oil from you know from Russia into Europe. Uh, and by the way, we haven't seen all of it yet. I mean, we're going to come into sanctions here in December and then products again in February, which basically will take out the last 750,000 barrels per day. So there's more to come of oil that used to go four or five days from Russia into Europe, now being replaced by voyages coming from the US Gulf, from the Middle East, India, and Far East. So. There's no doubt that that a strong, already strong market got kind of pushed into full utilization by the situation we've seen. But I think what's important to keep in mind on this is that it is not just now uh, a temporary thing due to a war. I mean, there will be structural changes to oil and gas going from Russia into Europe in our view and therefore we don't think that this is something that just goes away in a uh, in a ceasefire situation and end of war. Uh, we are looking into an area going forward where supply of ships will be limited because there's a low order book and no new ships can come before 2025 that you order today. Low inventories, uh, an already saturated market if you add on top of that a structural change of longer-term mild because of, of the oil you take away from Russia into Europe, I think you're looking at a fundamental change that will keep this market going for, Italy for quite a number of years.
0: Yeah. Um, for sure. We'll, we'll, we'll get to to next year, but I guess there's um, there are some big changes. And I may get get to that with Anthony, but I, I want to um, take a quick on inefficiencies um, with, uh, with Carlos, if that's okay. Um, I mean, it is... Um, it seems to be a contributing factor, right? Um, We have utilization now. Uh, I think I maybe have mentioned it, but it's the highest in 20 years, at least. 92%. Basically a fully utilized fleet. Um, That's even higher than what it was in the third quarter of 2008, which was the previous peak. Um, That's saying something, right? It's not a lot in shipping. It was higher than what it was in... uh, Third quarter of 2008, um, but could you talk about any efficiencies your you know your company may be seeing in Domico, or do you think that that's a contributing factor? And are these things that are going to stick around, or are they going to go away? What do you think,
4: uh, Turner, Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Inefficiencies are playing a big role, um, and I mean usually trade will tend to happen in the most efficient way possible, and of course when there are sanctions that come in, into play they change what the optimal trades are. Um, And in particular, in this case also, um, what we are seeing is that a lot of the um, Russian product is moving anyway and and arriving at the destinations it was arriving previously, but in, in an inefficient way. So it would go to countries which are um, let's say neutral or um, a bit more ambiguous in their stance towards uh, towards uh, Russia, uh, and, uh, and from there they either blended and um, and re-exported, or but they do seem to find another home. And then often what we are seeing also is a lot of transshipment happening. So uh, that lengthens the typical voyage, um, and it, it is definitely a contributing factor. It, it, it is happening. In some regions, of it, it's happening in many regions of the world, um, and you see uh, also out of Fujaria that uh, the, the the waiting times has has increased quite a lot. Um, and uh, but it's happening also in the Mediterranean and uh, in the Baltic, so it's uh, it's quite widespread.
0: Thanks, Carlos. Um, Anthony, coming to you, um, I think even before the war. Uh, has contributed in some form or another. Um, maybe that hasn't fully played out yet. We we'll talk about that. We talk about this sort of broader landscape, I guess. You know, there has been pretty much the same story for many years um, where you have European refineries that have been closing down, um, opening more in the Middle East. There's some big coming there in Asia to an extent as well. And so that sort of creates these these longer these longer distances and, and more ton miles and more demand for the ships. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the broader the broader landscape here? Um, are those uh, do we see any changes with that story we've heard for a while? Um, Three really interesting, I guess, European refineries must be getting hit pretty bad by natural gas, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, they use it to um, to refine for for diesel, and obviously, natural gas prices are, are very very high. Uh, in Europe, um, catastrophically high. Really, uh, that can't be good for them. But maybe you could just give us a little bit of uh, update on that story we've heard in product for a long time and how it, how it kind of looks from here. If it's okay, I'm going to answer a different question first. Sure, okay. All right. <coughs> which sure, go for which it. is kind of to you know to kind of build on the discussion
5: we've had so far. And I think as was pointed out, right now MR rates globally on average are maybe forty-five thousand a day. But that doesn't mean that every ship everywhere in the world is earning forty-five thousand. I think it's interesting to Note that reflect on the fact that when this when it really kicked off in in March, um, we initially saw a spike in the U.S. Gulf and in the Middle East, and then that really began to spread around. So at the moment, um, in the West, uh, rates are probably thirty-five, forty thousand a day. Uh, Arabian Gulf is fifty-five thousand a day. South Asia is sixty-five thousand a day, and North Asia at the moment is ninety thousand a day.
0: My my estimates are coming up. So So, just raised them on Monday. So (laughs) um,
5: so I I think. you know, when we think about, you know, you know, upward potential in this market through the winter when we have such a anticipated disruption with the continued rollout of the impact of sanctions and, and typical winter uh, impact, I think, um, you know, we need to lift our eyes a little higher than 45,000 a day. Um, so just, just wanted to make that point. Also, maybe it's also worth mentioning that at the moment, even at 45,000 a day, Freight is only about 5% of the value of the cargo being shipped in our business. So it's not like freight's going to choke off demand.
0: Yeah. Well, since you raised the topic, what what, what could happen in the winter, right? I mean, shipping stocks are often very momentum-driven. The rates go up. The stocks go up. Uh, So everybody's interested to know what could happen in the winter. I know we wrote about it uh, this past week, and um, my colleague, Freda Morkadal, was saying that I almost don't want to repeat the number he said because it could be so high. Um, right. But uh, what are we looking at in winter, especially as this Russia uh, embargo from the EU kicks in in December? I, I, I don't think there's any practical upward limit um, yeah.
5: because, because again, it's not you know the freight cost in itself is not going to choke off demand. Um, so you know, so uh, let's see what happens. All right. But going back to the question, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll move on from there because yeah, I don't want.
0: Yeah, I'm who argue, wants to take that? Yeah. The broader the broader yeah. landscape. I mean, we were um, we were talking. I mean, like I said, it's been a similar story for many years, but I guess it's it's still true. Um, anyone who wants to answer that, Yanko?
1: Certainly. Um, yes, yeah, I mentioned before. If you if you sort of argue that it's about five percent increase that we've seen on ton days, then about half of this is imports into Europe. So that would be about a two and a half. Uplift. Then you've got Latin America, which would be accounting for another two and a half percent. So there in Latin America is both that you are getting cargoes from further away and that you've got logistical uh, issues in that area. And finally, you've got a couple of pieces that are moving in each direction. You've got Australia, New Zealand, uh, ramping up by that they are increased their imports by about 20 percent, which adds another one percent. And then finally, you need to adjust for that Asia, in general, have been a little more slow. And that that is uh, a decrease in the demand picture of 1%. So it is actually the key drivers are the two phenomena that you uh, mentioned before. One, refinery dislocation. And two, which is Europe, predominantly, uh, and Australia, New Zealand. And then the other thing is this inefficiency in the value chain, especially in Latin America, where you've seen that. Uh, the time to get the cargo out is, has been on the increase. And at the same time, we've also had longer distances. So that, I think, is is a good proxy for how it's played out right now. And we don't really see that any of these factors are not there to stay. Um, yeah. And as a couple of my colleagues pointed to, then from February next year, there's no doubt that, that I think we will see an increase in the demand following the, uh, the EU sanctions taking into play, because you've simply not seen the diesel uh, that is normally moving from short from uh, Russia into Europe. You've not seen a, a real decrease in that. It is more or less at the same level as it was pre-war. So that is all for us to come, that you will need to take diesel into Europe from further away from US, uh, Middle East, and, and India.
0: Yeah. Um, can,
1: can, can I add just to, to some do. of that as well? Because I think
3: one thing we haven't spoken about is, you know, we talk about rates being 50 to 70 to 90, etc. cetera. And you know, I've seen quite a lot of people trying to analyze around what if ton mile goes up by another percent, then how much of freight rate rates go up. And I think it's just important to underline actually what Tony said is that once you reach, as we have now, which is a technical full utilization, basically means that all ships are sailing and there are more cargoes than ships in general terms. What makes rate go up (coughs) is actually the, the, the sentiment and the commercial negotiation that goes on every day where people push and push and push, and at some point, certain cargoes don't materialize, and then it drops off a little bit, as I think Robert said, and back up again. But it's not a mathematical thing. Once you have full utilization, there's nothing that prevents rates to go to any level other than, as Tony mentioned, if freight becomes so much out of the total transportation yeah. that it kills it, then you'll see the consequence. But even if markets should go to, you know, I think LR tools were mentioned by I think by you actually, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per ATC. Yeah. That would probably only be about thirteen, fourteen dollars per barrel of oil transportation cost. And in that context, that doesn't kill trade. So it just to, to to make sure that people understand that there's no real cap on this situation other than once rate becomes really, really high a percentage of, of the total cost.
2: I think another important point, and you know, it's been shown in these last weeks and months, is that the owner's ability to drive prices up when that volume comes in and drive it up fast is, is very, very high. So in the times where the cargo hasn't been there and you've had that backing off, the market has drifted down slowly but as soon as the cargo is back in, you see this pattern where rates drive out extremely fast. We saw the US Gulf market go from the fifteen to forty five in you know in about four trading sessions. We we see the LR two market out of the East many times just take four trading sessions to go through forty thousand dollars a day. Part of that is is not just that you've got basic high utilization. It's that if you just take the three companies that we have here, nowhere else in bulk shipping do you have as higher percentage of commercial ships under one group. I mean, between the three of us, we, we our percentage of total spot product tankers is very, very high, and that's because you don't. We don't just trade what we own; we also manage in pools other people's assets. So compared to the largest crude oil carrier companies, compared to the largest dry belt carrier companies, the actual dead weight held in any any point in the spot market is, is very, very concentrated in in the product market. And if you then put on top, overlap that with the amount of tonnage controlled by certain key traders, you get an even more concentrated market. And the other thing to understand is that in bull shipping markets, traders actually become owners. That they, they are happy with rates being high. If they've chartered in some ships last year from weak owners or people that had to charter out for, you know, fourteen a day on MRs or seventeen a day on LR twos or something, they love it this year that they're making money. They're making money totally onto their own trading books from this. And that's a very important um, dynamic that is sort of, you know, largely, you know, overlooked by investors or analysts. And why would they know it anyway?
0: Uh, Carly. <laughs> Carlos, Carlos, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, what we see in the spot rates. So we've heard a lot of big numbers thrown out here, uh, and they are big numbers. And they just seem to be persisting. Um, you know, Robert described the journey through the year and there's been upward surges and some consolidation and then back up again. Um, we've seen less of that movement on the long-term charters. Uh, D'Amico has a significant uh, chartered in, barebo deplete. Um, what are you seeing, what kind of moves have you seen on the, uh, the sort of longer-term charters? Um, and how are you thinking about that as a company?
4: Yeah, we, we usually um, tend to have more of our fleet covered through period contracts. Uh, but uh, when we saw what was happening in the market, uh, and it was quite easy to, to understand in which direction the market was going to be moving over the course of the, ne- the next few months um, after the war started, Uh, we decided to not put any more vessels on time charter out, uh, and therefore our coverage started falling very rapidly. I mean, we are only 20% covered uh, in the last quarter of this year and uh, 6% covered uh, for for next year. Uh, And what we are seeing over the last few weeks is that finally charterers, uh, which were being very unrealistic about the rates that should be paid to to charter vessels, uh, are coming to terms with what the market is. Um, And uh, we are seeing numbers which are uh, interest in chartering at numbers, which now start to make sense. And by that I mean more than 30,000 for one year for an ECHO MR and more than 40,000 for one year for an ECHO LR1. Uh, and at these numbers, we might take some some additional coverage. Although we, we are not in a hurry to do so, because we are very positive about the market going for the, not only for the next year, but for the next two three years. So.
0: Tony, Tony, you want to talk about term coverage or spot? How are you thinking about chartering? <clears throat>
5: um, we we think of one year TC as kind of being a substitute for, <clears throat> for just spot trading, and it's just a, a view on the market. I think at the moment, you know, maybe the one-year TC rate is 30000 a day, $28,30. Um, but we think, you know, the next six months we should be earning well in excess of that. So you have to think about what are you giving up on the back half. Sure. Um, and then you can apply the same logic to future years. Uh, in reality, normally the multi-year mar- time charter market in our business is quite thin. Um, we expect that that's going to start becoming a more kind of a popular thing for charters to do.
0: Are you seeing that? Uh,
5: beginning to. Yeah.
2: Um,
5: you have to think about, you know, uh, counterparty risk, uh, yeah. etc. But, um, no, it's probably going to build through the winter. Um, and, you know, I think uh, you'll probably see some companies begin to take cover.
0: So. What do you think about next year? I mean, uh, <clears throat> as I started uh, the panel, opened the panel, the question is, this, can this be sustained? The general mood seems to be that uh, it's not at least not slowing down. And perhaps as we get into the winter, maybe even accelerating. But you know, stretching it a bit longer, what do you, what do you think? How long can this last? I mean, the order book is not really existent, frankly. I mean, there's there's there's, there's very little order book, right? We could see with scraps, a little bit of scrapping, it's a zero, maybe with negative efforts. Some people playing, but very limited in any case. How long can this last? Did you want to give a oh, quick stab I, at sir? it? Sure. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. So I,
5: I think one interesting thing is that we have we by no means made a full recovery from the pandemic. In terms of oil demand, so jet fuel demand is still seventy percent pre-pandemic, et cetera. So I think there's still some, you know, some just recovery demand that's uh, yet yet to come. Uh, obviously, there are cross currents and countervailing points uh, in terms of the economic outlook you yeah. know, on the macro level. But you know, you know, it's it's not clear obviously what's going to happen next year. But you could easily see demand remain quite strong in our business.
0: Yeah. Sure, Yalco. Uh, um what do you think about next year and even beyond, if you care to guess?
1: Yeah, well, I think we've taken the stance that we actually don't know what is uh, what is to come. Um, and that in an environment where you are uncertain, then for us it's better to be having no cover rather than making a call on whether 30,000 for a year is a good rate or a bad rate. So I think that we will be much more informed collectively let's say, sometime in Q1 next year, at the point when uh, when you've seen the recalibration of the trading uh, routes uh, that will have to still occur following the EU sanctions that I'm still a personal believer in that will, will come into play. So I think until that point, I think the market will be very volatile. I'm generally very positive at uh, this moment, but at the same time, None of us a year ago would have foreseen sure. that we were sitting in this market. So you cannot rule out a black swan. Sure. Um, it's probably quite quite difficult for us to understand what it would be currently, but but that could uh, be the case. Until then, we are all in for the spot market and believes uh, that that is the right place to be.
0: Yeah. Anybody else want to cut? Call- Robert, you look like you have something to say.
2: Yeah. It's like, I think we should start to get real a bit. It's like, you know, uh, 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 the room is not full, okay? So we know the market hasn't topped out. When this We know, we've seen it many times. We saw it in, you know, the, 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 the late 80s. We saw it in 2007, 2008. We saw it in 2015. Whenever a panel is presenting and people are standing here, which they do, and they're standing in the doorway because they can't get in, and they give up getting in, so they stand in the bar. You know, we, we, we learn by now that that's the time to start thinking that the market is topping. We haven't even sort of let, let's sort of yes, we can have a black swan. We don't have a clue whether you know something really stupid is going to happen. and We're probably better off not worrying about something really stupid is going to happen anyway. So let's sort of first start getting real about the situation. We've had the US pumping oil into this market like crazy with his SPR releases for months now. We've had China kind of in slowdown and lockdown. We've had European Airlines unable to fly the flights that they've got booked. And still still the world has still got been totally unable to build its commercial product inventories at all. You're now entering the period. You've had deliveries of vessels. We've still had the crude oil market being so bad. You've had VLCCs earning less than HandyMax product tankers. So when they've been delivering from the shipyard along with Suezmaxes, they've been poaching our cargoes through the summer too. We've even, as Jakob says, had some transfers with some of the more modern LR2s that were trading in crude cleaned up and came into products. But despite all that, that adding to daily supply, the market has marched on upwards. Now that's not happening. The VLCC market is strong, so you won't have that handicap. You don't have any deliveries now. Ships don't really get delivered in November and, and December. And yet we are facing winter. It is one thing to go into summer with low inventories, especially when... The, when things are working there. It's yet another to go into winter with low inventories when these rates are where they are and utilisation is where it is. Just like Michael's saying. It's like the market will bear whatever it's going to bear because the cost of our cargo is so high and the cost of transportation is so low and the customer himself is actually making money in these trades. No one blows up with our chartering guys if they charged. you know, all of us have fixed ships at over $100,000 a day this summer on individual voyages. Not one time have we had phone calls from the heads of the, the, the you know BP and Shell shipping ringing up and saying, what the hell are you doing screwing our guys over? <laughs> of course not, because they're making loads of money at the moment, the traders and the oil companies. So you've got a lot of price inelasticity. And you've got this wonderful sort of thing where the only mistake even we have done in the last nine months and last year is we haven't been bullish enough. We have underestimated the strength of this market at all times because even we've been afraid to believe. Half the governments in the world are not afraid to believe, they're just not facing up that there could be quite a crisis related to energy. So even if you don't have any more developments in Russia, you're facing winter, which will come in this situation. We ourselves have no idea what is going to happen if you take this next stage that Yakub, Michael, Anthony have been speaking about. Are we going to be taking handy carriers from Russia to Brazil? What's going to happen? Ice class MRs, are they going to that route? Are we going to substitute Europe from Saudi Arabia or North China who knows But when you're up in these low 90% of utilization just a small change to the positive can lead to dramatic results it is important the outliers it's great if you have a market that's averaging let's say 40 50 but you have the odd voyages at a hundred that does an awful lot to your actual numbers so here We don't know where it is. We're seriously excited what's happening. We're worried, of course, that there could be a black swan. Everybody should be in this type of world. But the actual product market itself, once again, as we sit here in front of winter, the risk is to the upside, not to the downside. The customers are accelerating their demand for upside. The important point that Anthony made and Carlos made to time charters is that three or four months ago, there were not three-year charters. Now there are three-year charters and there are negotiations on five-year charters. That means the customer is there looking into the long term because of the fundamentals that are there. And, you know, that's before you get to the fact that next year you've got environmental regulations, they're going to reduce the capacity because of the ton miles. I mean, none of the analysts are really talking about that properly. It's like, you know, it's like as a group, not necessarily Clarksons, but as a group, they're kind of afraid to really say what's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, we just raised our estimates. i looking at consensus. Seems like um, they're not keeping up with the spot. I think that's fair to say. Let's come to the stocks. I want to make sure that we get time for that and maybe a few questions as well. Um, first, I mean, you said, okay, I want a question to Hofnia. Um, you have leaned into this. Yeah? So tell us about kind of how you've been positioning yourself for the strong market. You made some acquisitions. And tell us about your thinking there. And, um, and maybe what you think about values as well, right? Because we've seen the spot been very strong. Seems like a consensus among this panel that there's no massive sustained pullback. I mean, we could see some consolidation. But uh, generally, that things look pretty good. The term charters are coming up. They're still quite a bit lower than spot, but coming up. Tell us a little bit about your acquisitions and I guess how you're feeling about that now. I assume it's good. And um, and just uh, thoughts about values where they are now. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I think first and foremost, the, the acquisitions we made last year was obviously not made on the back of us thinking that uh, we we're going to be sitting in a market today uh, as high as it is. But it was actually they were made on the back of Uh, us looking into, as we've all mentioned here, a strong market fundamentals, but really more important, uh, an order book that's low, and even more importantly, the inability of people to spend money today ordering a new ship and get it delivered in 18 months. So I have never seen in my time in, in this market that you are unable to spend the money you make on a new built ship that will then be delivered in the foreseeable future. It has always been this way that you make money in a, in a strong market, second-hand prices go up, they go above the, the new-build parity and replacement value, and then you start moving over and you order a new build and it comes in 18 months. And then down the line you ruin the market because basically there's too many ships when the market goes quiet. So, and I'm not saying that we are more disciplined today than we were 10 years ago, because I actually don't think we are, but it doesn't matter because it can't happen, because you just can't get the ships. So I think, Second-hand values, although they've gone up since the end of Q2 actually, probably by 20% already, I think there's a lot more to go because as you start making more money, as you go along, uh, as Robert said, as you start getting more environmental regulations, there is really only one place to go if you want to modernize your fleet and make sure you have longer time to work in, and that is to buy second-hand ships. And, and still, when you look at the alternatives, there aren't any. So I think second-hand values have only probably just begun uh, the void. In a very strong market like this, I'm convinced you're going to see a, a lot more uptake. Um, and what really makes me positive and why we're happy about these 44 ships that we bought is exactly for that reason, is that we can't ruin the market even if we wanted to. And, and, and just it's really important that people remember this, that every single time our market has been bad, It has never been driven by lack of demand. It has always been driven by an oversupply of ships. And that's the biggest difference that we're seeing this time around compared to any time in history, really.
0: Carlos, what do you do here? Just sit back and, um, I mean, uh, to to build on the point from Hofnia, just looking at the Clarkson's data, the, the ships are still, with maybe resales being an exception, at or below new build parity. I mean, and I guess when we've seen uh, these segments really have blowouts and rates, like we saw with container earlier in the pandemic. Um, they go far, far above new build parity because of the, the excess cash flow that one can get in the near term market prior to delivery. But um, what do you what do you do? I guess um, you know we're 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 getting to
4: time where we're getting closer.
0: Uh, I want to hear what everybody wants to do with the money, Carlos. Yeah, what to do with the money?
4: <laughs> yeah, what to do with the money? Good question. Uh, A good problem to have. Uh, no, we, we were fortunate. We found some, we had some very interesting opportunities this year to, to, to redeploy some of the money that we are, we are making already. Um, we, we agreed to buy out a JV partner in um, um, one of our JVs at a very attractive price just before asset values started moving up quite fast. Um, uh, and we closed the deal this summer. Uh, and then we we have purchase options on uh, two vessels which are in yen, and so in addition to the asset values moving up uh, very much, we also had uh, the very weak yen that helped us. So we exercised one of these purchase options uh, recently, and we have another one which we are very likely going to be exercising. And uh, we paid uh, around 30 million for a, f- a five-year-old MR, which is probably worth around 40 million today. So that that, that was a. Uh, Quite a good investment I would say um, and um, and yeah and then we have a number of other uh, actually options to, to buy vessels that we TC in which are maybe not as attractive as these two which uh, which are denominated in yen but which, which are still in the money uh, and which we might uh, we will look at uh, carefully down the road um, and then we will look to the de- leverage, because for us, uh, it is important to use the, this time, to this moment, to, to strengthen the company, uh, so that when the next down cycle uh, happens, uh, we are in a position to, to take opportunity of that. It's, it's going to require patience, because uh, the next down cycle is going to take quite a few years, uh, I believe, to, to, uh, to materialize. But we have to be in a position for when that happens, we that we can take, uh, make the most of it, and uh, and we sure. did. Sure. I mean, th- I
0: guess everybody here has been through a tough market, and I guess uh, yeah. you know deleveraging is a priority to a degree for, yeah. for everyone has been for many companies yeah. uh, the main yeah. priority this year. But uh, just to make sure we get around to everybody, um, Ardmore Tony, what do you um, what do you what are your capital priorities? Yeah, it's, it's
5: very simple. I mean, we've had a capital allocation policy for. Now, and um, our top priority has been deleveraging down below forty percent. We'll more than meet that target by the end of the year. After that, we'll probably pivot to uh, paying dividends again, uh, and you just keep on paying down debt. Um, I think uh, it just feels that um, you know asset prices have risen so rapidly. I think we're we're just very busy, you know, spot trading ships, and also working on our energy transition plans.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, Tor. What do you want to do with the capital? Yeah, to do so we feel
1: actually very comfortable with our current deliverage ratio around 40%. And I think that's that's based on public figures at the end of the second quarter. So that has gone lower by then. So that means that the excess cash will be basically rewarded back to shareholders distribution. Um, and yeah, I think that is, that is the right policy for a company like TORM to simply be rewarding uh, shareholders at, the, at this stage of the cycle. I don't see a need for reinvestment. I don't see a need really at this stage to delever
0: further. Yeah, uh, I'll jump to near Robert, you can go last. You can go last, Robert. You can finish this off.
3: What? Me first? You mean? You first. <laughs> oh, okay. Mr. <laughs> Halfnier first. Yeah. yeah, but really, I mean, I don't think there's so much different to say compared to to the others here. I mean, you know, we are where we want to be on the balance sheet side. Um, we don't have any future investments. We have completed our growth strategy. So it's really returning capital to shareholders. That's what we'll be focusing on uh, going forward.
0: Robert, I'll save you for last because um, it's a, you're a bit of a mystery what you're going to do. I guess you have this uh, third quarter conference call that's going to come up. Um, I think previously you said that you were going to sit down with the board I guess sometime around now, really, uh, and figure out what you were going to do. But uh, you hadn't decided uh, during the summer. so. Uh, guess you're not going to give it away but i don't know what do you want to say here robert what are you going to do with the money
2: i don't think we promised we would say what we did said in the board meeting but we are going to continue doing what we're doing which is you know increasing liquidity lowering debt and taking opportunistic positions to buy back stock you know under net asset value i mean i think that that's the you know i think that the, the we learned in the last cycle in That you want to put yourself in, take the opportunity to put yourself into incredibly strong positions. We've got a situation where we we haven't got any capex because we've got a new fleet with no new building orders. So if you press the debt down, increase the liquidity, um, and just be a little bit patient, you can you, you can really do a lot of things at that point in terms of rewarding the shareholder once you've once you've sorted you know that position out but we've already started we already feel confident enough we've been buying stock on weak positions so I don't think it's a mystery we've been doing what we've been doing now for a few weeks no. and whilst the stock is trading so far below what we consider the net asset value is then that's the best alternative
0: sure. Uh, time for one or two quick questions any questions the panel how does segment shipping any questions okay okay Uh, then I I mean Robert you brought a point I mean NAV trading at NAV I think that's a question right Uh, are you trading at NAV or are you trading below NAV Uh, You've highlighted what you believe. Um, and I guess, look, you know, time charter rates are going up. Most of the assets are still at new build parity. And yeah, new build prices have gone up. But that's, you know, and asset prices have gone up. But, again, new build prices is going up as well. So adjusted, you know, replacement costs is really doesn't look anything, doesn't look too too challenging from an asset value perspective. So um, what do you think? I mean, are you tr- what? How much a discount do you think you're trading at? I mean, where do, where ship well, values I'll, I'll going? T- what do you, how do you want to answer that? Look,
2: it, we look at look at third party data. Okay, first of all, all analysts by definition are, be, are behind in their starting point. At this point, we're closing the third quarter. It's closed for all of us already in terms of revenue. Really, we're working on the fourth quarter. But if you see, the analysts have to use the balance sheets on set on June the thirtieth so they ignore all the cash that has been built between then and now that's the first error the second error is that all you need to do is look at vesselvalues.com and the values have been increasing Or clarksons and they started with a, with a uh, and they started with a with a lower nev anyway because they felt they need to be be conservative so you have a compounding of the compounding and if you take certain companies if you had a company that is earning, you know, it had an NEV. The analysts thought they had an NEV at 20, but really the NEV was 24 on June the 30th. And they've probably earned $4 in cash since. Yeah. Hmm. Then, you know, the NEV is 28 already, plus a 10% appreciation of 5%. Let's play conservative. 5% appreciation in values yeah. at a 50% leverage already that that valuation is at 32. Yep. So you're a big wide differences to NAV on some of these companies. And and you
0: stretch it out as well, right? We were running this exercise on the desk earlier this week and if you look at the rates that we see in the spot market and you look what happens to the NAV by the end of next year, it's a it's a big move. I think um, I think people might be might be shocked if they looked at I mean to, if, look look
2: at, t- to take his company, what's your market cap?
0: So, thanks for asking.
1: Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, it's uh, good. Uh, I'm <laughs> long your company. About one, 1.7 billion. a Self serving <laughs> personal ambition <laughs> <laughs> position. What, what, what was it? 700 million? 1.7 billion. 1.7 billion, okay. So, he fixed an LR2 tomorrow at $75,000 a day for 50 days. So, that's 60, 70. It's not bad. That one fixture changes his NAV a reasonable amount for the week. Yeah,
0: we looked at the numbers uh, Tony you had a uh, comment you had some thoughts uh, yeah it's just pretty pretty much the same point that I, I think
5: it's not I think the real driver of NAV right now is actually the cash accumulation yeah um, so even for us at ten dollars a share based on the analyst estimates we're going to make 150 in the third quarter set fourth quarter market is already higher than
0: that um, so there you're probably talking three dollars you know, so, uh, transformative for the balance sheets transformative yeah. cash flow transformative for NAVs if this continues. So um, it's going to be very exciting to watch uh, what these gentlemen can deliver uh, through the second half of this year and also into next year. So I just want to thank everybody and round it off with that. Thank you. Thank you. If anybody has a question, we'll answer it. If not, I think we'll we'll take a break. Okay, there's two questions here. Question here, yeah.
2: Hi, gentlemen. Uh, my name is Joanne. I'm from Gaslog, and I'm head of HR and ESG. And I wanted to ask you maybe slightly different questions. So obviously, you're all very excited about how well the sector is doing. And typically, we know what you do with all the money is shareholders' investment or balance sheet. And I wanted to ask if you are intending on doing anything more with regard to your ESG programs, the S part of ESG being social, giving back to some of the people who are hurting in our societies in any way. I mean, I'm just wondering if uh, you obviously have ESG agendas, and are you thinking about increasing what you do in that respect? I know you are, certainly. Absolutely, I know you are. (laughs)
0: I know Carlos is because it's in the family. Yeah, the family has taken care of itself, That's I imagine. Right? In Domico, um, yeah,
4: know. We, we do it as a, um, at the group level, so including also the private companies in the in the, the Domico group, but also at the DIs level, there's a there's a lot of attention uh, to to many aspects of uh, ESG. Uh, of course, the the environmental aspects, um, and in that respect, one one thing that we are doing, which is well. Not necessarily giving back directly, but uh, indirectly, I would say, hopefully, is um, we have been testing biofuels on our vessels, um, and uh, and uh, we have tested 30% blend biofuels, um, and how, and with very good results. Uh, and now we are testing 40% blends, and we want to reach 50% blends. And uh, so, ho- hopefully, that is a drop-in solution, which is not. Very difficult to implement, and which can help reduce uh, CO two emissions. We we work also a lot, uh, of course, to make our vessels uh, more efficient uh, from an operational and a construction perspective all the time. But I, I, all the players here do the same, I'm sure, um, and um, and we do a lot uh, to in terms of uh, um, helping. Um, yeah, with the education of cadets uh, in Ireland, where our companies are based, and uh, so we are, we are very involved also on that front. I'll just jump in a little bit.
5: I mean, I think I think we're all engaged in various aspects of the energy transition, but we're you know we're constantly investing uh, capex and in energy savings devices for the ships. Um, you know, we're very, you know, when it comes to seafarers, we're very active with the mission of seafarers, raising funds for them, um, not just giving money, but actively engaging in, in campaigns. Um, we've, we've already got a very diverse staff. Uh, one of our concerns at the moment is uh, uh, the impact of rising uh, energy costs uh, for our European based staff, and we're, you know, we're working on that as well. So, we, I think we'd all like to think we're doing the right thing. So. Yeah, I would argue that it's a very good question, but I would argue
1: that it's the responsibility for all of us at any given time, whether you have windfall profits or whether you are under normal circumstances, to play a role in society where you are active. And in our case, we have uh, for years been supporting the education uh, in the Philippines of of really the poorest that you can identify. Um, So they will not be part of TORM, but they will they will simply be offered an education instead of working as child labor. Uh, and, and I think that's our way of giving back. But it's not really related to whether we make a profit or not.
0: OK. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.